Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, December 11th. In today's news, FDA authorization is all but certain after federal advisors endorse the Pfizer vaccine. Stimulus talks fall into disarray as deadlines loom. And a Texas woman dies from COVID five days after she was supposed to get married. But first, the big idea. More than 20 million Americans are on some form of unemployment assistance, and 12 million will run out of benefits the day after Christmas, unless new relief materializes. According to fresh data from the USDA, 54 million Americans will struggle this year with hunger, a 45% increase from 2019. With food aid programs like SNAP and WIC being reduced and other federal assistance on the brink of expiration, food banks and pantries are inundated, reporting hours-long waits and lines that stretch into the thousands. The number of new unemployment claims last week rose sharply to 853,000, up 137,000 from the week before. The worst weekly jobs report during the depths of the Great Recession a dozen years ago was 650,000. It's hard to capture just how many people are living on knife's edge right now. The result is a growing subset of Americans who are stealing food to survive. According to interviews with more than a dozen retailers, security experts, and police departments across America, shoplifting has surged markedly since the pandemic began in the spring, and it's at much higher levels than during past economic downturns. But what's distinctive about this trend is what's being taken. More staples, like bread, pasta, and baby formula. My colleagues Abba Batarai and Hannah Denham have been talking with several people who have taken to shoplifting, not to excuse their behavior, but to understand it. Let me introduce you to two of them. Sloan, who's 28, lives in Virginia. She's been dropping avocados, mushrooms, and other fresh produce into her bag without paying for them since September. She worries constantly about getting caught, so she takes only a couple of items at a time. But she says when she's eating cheap meals every day, sometimes it's nice to have an avocado to spice things up for a night or two. Sloan, who asked to be identified only by her first name to avoid potential prosecution, worked in the food industry until the pandemic upended her job. Her partner, who worked in retail, was furloughed for months. Then he quit in August because it no longer felt safe to go back to work. But the resignation meant no unemployment benefits. Things are bad for them. They're late on bills, late on rent. And Sloan says their car is nine days away from being repossessed. She said she's used to being very self-sufficient, and it's just an awful feeling to suddenly be so desperate. Like several others interviewed, Sloan says she targets major chains because they're better able to absorb the losses than small businesses. Just across the border in Maryland, Jean was successfully juggling college and a job. She'd just bought her first car when the pandemic crashed down like a sneaker wave. Her son's daycare center suddenly closed in April forcing her to give up her $15 an hour job as a receptionist. But quitting meant that she didn't qualify for unemployment benefits. She says she was denied food stamps at least three times 
and gave up on local food banks because of the long lines. With no stimulus aid and her savings gone by May, Jean said she was out of options. So she began sneaking food into her son's stroller at the local Walmart. She says she'd take things like ground beef, rice, or potatoes, but always pay for something small, like a packet of M&Ms. Each time, she says she'd tell herself that God would understand. The 21-year-old says she also rationalized it by saying it's not like she was stealing a television. She says it was never malicious, and it's certainly not something she's proud of. But she was hungry. Her mother sometimes helped out, sending a few hundred bucks or using her own food stamps to pay for chicken and frozen peas for her daughter and grandson. That tided Jean over until July, when she got a big break. A full-time job in a new state, making 16 bucks an hour. Jean has health insurance now, and she donates to the local food pantry. She hopes that she'll never have to steal again, but she says that her sense of security is fleeting. As Jean put it, quote, I know what it's like to do everything you can and still not make it. And I know it could happen again. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as the week comes to an end. Number one, federal advisors last night endorsed the Pfizer BioNTech coronavirus vaccine, making it all but certain that the FDA will authorize it on an emergency basis within hours or days. But the prospect of relief from the coronavirus came on a day when 107,000 Americans were hospitalized with COVID and a record 3,347 deaths were reported, topping the milestone reached one day earlier. Within days, our country will almost certainly surpass 300,000 deaths from the contagion. The thumbs up from the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee was the culmination of an all-day meeting during which the panel heard presentations on the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine, including plans to monitor its longer-term safety. If, as expected, the FDA follows up quickly with an emergency authorization, the shots will start being moved to states within 24 hours. Lori McGinley, Carolyn Johnson, and Joel Achenbach report that a sense of urgency hung over the hearing. FDA officials said they've asked Pfizer to monitor vaccine recipients for anaphylactic reactions as a potential risk following a British report of a few allergic reactions over there. Despite the committee's consensus that the vaccine is safe and effective, there was at least one cautionary note about the absence of long-term data. Ovita Fuller, an associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Michigan, voted against the recommendation to approve the Pfizer vaccine. She expressed concern about the lack of long-term data for a vaccine technology that has never before been used in humans. She called the risks limited, but predicted the uptake in the community is going to be very poor. Next to be considered is Moderna's vaccine. The FDA will release its assessment on Tuesday, and the advisory committee will meet again on December 17th to review it. If it gets favorable evaluations, as expected, the FDA is likely to authorize that vaccine within days. One of the vaccines that the U.S. government made a big bet on in hundreds of millions of dollars, the one from drug makers Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, is going back to the drawing board after it failed to trigger a promising immune response in older adults. And while you were sleeping, the Australian government ended the trial of a vaccine being developed there by the University of Queensland after several patients received false positive HIV tests 
The vaccine was developed using a coronavirus spike protein and a protein from the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, that could not infect people but still simulated the production of antibodies in some trial participants. The antibodies then spurred the false positive HIV tests. Understandably, this created panic down under. Number two, congressional bickering back here in Washington over a new economic relief package escalated yesterday as lawmakers traded blame and put negotiations over critical legislation on the brink of collapse. And the finger pointing even threatened to imperil a must-pass spending bill in the Senate as lawmakers remain unsure at this hour whether they'll be able to pass a measure by a deadline at midnight tonight to avert a government shutdown. The worsening situation came as multiple lawmakers appeared to be pursuing conflicting goals with little time to sort out disagreements. On Wednesday, the House passed a spending bill to fund the government for a week to avoid a shutdown. The Senate must pass that bill and have Trump sign it to avoid a shutdown. But as of this morning, they're not sure they can get the unanimous consent for cloture. It's complicated, but they're trying to get the votes. They're not sure they have them right now. Meanwhile, on the House side, Speaker Nancy Pelosi suggested yesterday that discussions over emergency legislation could stretch beyond Christmas, even though multiple critical programs expire the day after. And there are fresh signs, as discussed, that the economy is weakening. Further adding to the confusion in the Capitol, Senators Bernie Sanders from Vermont and Josh Hawley, conservative from Missouri, threatened the must-pass government spending bill yesterday in an attempt to force congressional leadership to allow an up-or-down vote on another round of $1,200 stimulus checks. Mike DeBonis and Jeff Stein report that it's unclear whether Sanders and Hawley, quite the odd couple, would be willing to shut down the federal government to force a vote on their checks in the must-pass legislation, but they're hinting that they want to. Staffers for Mitch McConnell told leadership offices in both parties yesterday that the majority leader sees no possible path for a bipartisan group of lawmakers to reach an agreement on two contentious provisions that he says would be broadly acceptable to Senate Republicans. Things could always turn around, but it's not looking good right now. Number three, CDC Director Bob Redfield said yesterday during a virtual meeting of the Council on Foreign Relations that over the next 60 to 90 days, we are probably going to have more deaths per day than we had on September 11th or at Pearl Harbor. These numbers aren't just statistics. Each of them is a story. And we cannot become numb to the catastrophic loss of human life. So I want to close out this week with the stories of two women from Texas who we lost to COVID who sound wonderful. Lillian Blancas, a widely respected lawyer in El Paso, always wanted to be a judge. She was expected to achieve her goal tomorrow in a runoff election. She was the heavy favorite. But she died at a hospital on Monday of COVID. She was 47 years old. And Stephanie Lynn Smith was looking forward to getting married to Jamie Bassett. NBC reports that Stephanie's older brother was due to officiate the wedding in front of their parents at a scaled-down ceremony in a field in Lubbock, Texas, where Jamie had proposed. But the couple didn't marry because the day of the wedding, Stephanie went to the hospital after testing positive for the coronavirus and developing some bad symptoms. She was then diagnosed with pneumonia. Five days later, Jamie and Stephanie's family rushed to the hospital when they got word she was crashing. By the time they got there, though, Stephanie had already died. Stephanie was 29 years old. 
And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, December 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. Stay safe. I'll talk to you on Monday.